Our first reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 9, uh, beginning verse 18 to 23. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of his wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. They walked in the backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. This is God's word. If you could turn with me again to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 9. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're slowly working our way through this this great first book of the Bible. And now we're up to a a fascinating section. Uh, We read the first part uh, starting at verse 18. I'm going to pick up the reading at verse 24 and read through to verse 27. So that's Genesis chapter 9 and starting at verse 24. Let's hear from God's word. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his younger son had done to him, he said, Be cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. Well, friends, as we take a closer look at God's word, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, without your spirit, our our walk um, is a stumbling one in the darkness. Um, And yet, Lord, as we've just sung, we walk by faith and not by sight. And that faith is grounded in your sure and wonderful word. And Father, as you take a closer look at your word now, we pray that you would open up our hearts to know it better and then to show it better in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, in the 2014 movie Interstellar, you are transported to a future time where humanity has made such a wreck of things, something drastic needs to be done. And so a secret program is launched to find the creme de la creme of humanity, people who express the finest qualities of intelligence and virtue. Having gathered together this small select group, they then send them out into space, their mission to find a new place to call home. And so off they fly on this grand quest and after a few mind-bending twists and turns, mankind is ultimately saved. And so as the credits roll, we are left with a sense of of hope and, and confidence that no matter what the challenge, humanity will find a way. And friends, as you take this epic future story in, you can't help but wonder whether some of its inspiration came from an epic story of the past. A time when the earth was likewise on the brink of destruction. And so just like that movie, a small select group is chosen. These people are also put in a ship and sent high above the earth 
landing sometime later on a much more habitable, habitable place than the one they left behind. And as they leave their ship, there is also a great sense of, of hope and, and optimism. As Noah, the best of all humanity, arms around his family, looks out over the new world. The picture finished off with a spectacular rainbow framing the scene. I mean, forget Interstellar, what a spectacular way to finish this story off. The only thing is, though, this is not where the picture fades and the credits roll, is it? No, instead, we are now taken from that scene to another scene. A final incident in the life of this family some five, ten, possibly more years down the track. And as you read through the details of it, it, it hits me every time. What human author would have decided to take that editorial decision? To take us from Noah under the rainbow to Noah sprawled out drunk in his tent a decade or so later. I mean, we all have our bad days and nights, don't we? So why not give this great man a pass? Why choose to leave us with that shameful image before the credits roll? My friends, the short answer to that question is pretty clear, isn't it? No human storyteller would choose to finish off this way. But that choice wasn't made by man, but God. As the Apostle Peter will later write, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What we have in our hands is not the word of man, but the word of God. And he determined for this final account to be told why? Well, so we're not left with warm fuzzies about humanity, but the truth about humanity. And this final scene is key, absolutely key to that end. So friends, let's now put that key in the door and open it up to see how. The rainbow fades and we now read this in verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah and from them came the people who scattered over the earth, who were scattered over the earth. Now friends, as we, as we take this opening statement in, the main takeaway logically flows out from the last three chapters, doesn't it? The flood wiped out the entirety of humanity, bar Noah and his family. As such, everyone who now exists can be traced back to them. Nothing surprising or controversial about that. But there's also another little piece of information slipped into these verses as well, isn't there? And that is, we are to, to know, we are to be clear that Ham was the father of Canaan. Now friends, Shem, Ham and Japheth are going to wind up having 16 sons in total. So why are we to take special note of just one of these 16 here? the fourth son of Ham's, whose name is Canaan. 
Friends, even though we are living in a different time and culture and context to the people Moses was first writing to, nevertheless, as soon as we hear that name, it rings a bell, doesn't it? An alarm bell. And there's a good reason for that, a reason that the Israelites knew well. For they were currently heading to the land of Canaan, the very place this son of Ham's settled in. Their purpose? To kick his people, the Canaanites, out. They were to be destroyed due to their hatred of God, which produced a culture of horrific wickedness. And what caused them to become such a wicked brood? Well, by introducing Ham's son Canaan right here, you get the feeling it might have something to do with what happens next. And so we continue on. Verse 20, have a look. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. So having spent his first 600 years of his life pretty much flat out, Noah, now with a bit of time on his hands, decides to get them dirty, to turn the soil. Just like Adam, Noah is a gardener. But it turns out the type of garden Noah wants to extend produces a drink that has a particular punch to it. Now, friends, knowing this will soon get Noah into trouble and many others from him on, this is probably the moment to ask, was Noah, by introducing this alcoholic beverage to society, sinning? And the answer to this, well, let's hear it from King David, who writes this in Psalm 104. He says, The Lord makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. And later on, another king called Jesus will gladden his mother's heart when he turns water into wine at a wedding feast that she is hosting. And speaking of wedding feasts, at the Last Supper, Jesus holds a cup and says this to his disciples, I tell you. I will not drink from this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Our friends, these verses and others assure us that what Noah was cultivating here was not a sinful act. There is a problem here, though, and that is Fallen sinful hearts have a long history of not being able to handle correctly this drink and others like it. And as we too possess fallen hearts, this calls for some deep and sober reflection concerning the consumption of this drink. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, speaks directly to this. He writes, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. 
Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, why do we need to hear that? Why would we, as Christians, choose to be filled with the alcoholic spirit rather than the Spirit of God? Well, friends, because when we sin in thought and word and deed and feel the guilt that rises from that, alcohol promises relief. Relief without having to deal with the issue before God. In other words, it's an easy out to doing the real work, the hard work before our maker, providing a counterfeit joy to the true joy available from the Holy Spirit when we bring our guilt and sin before God. But because that requires deep reflection, heartfelt humility and sometimes brutal honesty, many reach for the bottle instead. Now friends, if you're thinking right now, you know, I wish so-and-so was hearing this, because that is not my struggle. Well, before we move on, let me ask you this. If you enjoy the odd drink, how would you go stopping for a while? How does it make you feel if someone challenged you to go dry for six months? Now, if that idea bothers you, then it's important to ask why. Could it be I am using it to fill a hole? one that actually needs the true spirit working in that area rather than a counterfeit spirit. Something, brothers and sisters, definitely worth thinking and praying over. Because you can be pretty sure, as godly as Noah was, this possible issue that can be had with this drink was left off his prayer list. I have no plans for this to be my new comforter over the Spirit of God. Of course not, Noah. But that's not how it works. It creeps up on you. Creeps up until over time the Spirit in the bottle turns into your go-to. The result? Well, it sure doesn't produce what the Holy Spirit produces, does it? Verse 21, have a look. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Was this the first time that that happened for Noah or had it become a growing problem? We just don't know, do we? All we do know is this great patriarch of faith and righteousness went for the bottle that night and he went for it hard. Just as Adam and Eve turned from God and indulged in the fruit of the tree, so Noah that night also turned from God to indulge in the fruit of the vine. And just like his first parents, Noah winds up in a shameful naked state. But thanks to his drunkenness, unlike Adam and Eve, he's none the wiser. So who is going to help Noah out? Who is going to cover his shame? 
On to verse 22, have a look. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his his father's nakedness and covered him up. Actually, no, that's not what we read, is it? Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. Now, friends, at first glance, we might think, okay, Ham missed the opportunity to help his father out. But maybe that was due to the shock of seeing him in this way. Nothing sinister here, just a a reflex action. But friends, there's two things about this verse that, that rules that out completely. Now first, notice Ham is again referred to as the father of Canaan. Now not only does that bring a a sinister element into this scene, but mentioning him again right here also suggests that this son of Ham's could possibly be involved somehow. So that's the first thing to take note of here. And the second is, Ham has his own tent where he and his wife sleep in. In other words, he has no business being anywhere near Noah's tent, let alone venturing inside. So why did Ham make it his business? And then what he saw make it his business to tell his two brothers, rather than helping his father out himself and then keeping it to himself. Well, reflecting on Ham's decision, John Calvin writes this, have a listen. He says, We know that parents next to God are most deeply to be reverenced. And if there were neither books nor sermons, nature itself constantly inculcates this lesson upon us. It is received by common consent that piety towards parents is the mother of all virtues. Ham, therefore, must have been of a wicked, perverse and crooked disposition, since he not only took pleasure in his father's shame, but wished to expose him to his brothers. Now, friends, Calvin's point is well made, isn't it? Ham, with disturbing glee, dismisses the fifth commandment. But what was his motive in dishonouring his father in such a brazen and intentional way? To simply have a little snigger with his brothers and then move on? I don't think so. No, by sharing with the two other leaders of the camp Noah's private shame, Ham is seeking to bring it out in the open, to see Noah publicly disgraced and that beyond repair. Now, friends, let's not be naive here. What is going on is nothing less than a family coup led by Ham. And once the dust settles, he's going to take the reins. Ownership of this group who are repopulating the world. And he will hand the scepter on to his son, Canaan. Friends, remember God's word to Satan back in Genesis 3? I will put enmity, there will be war between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. Now the first shot in this war went off when Cain killed Abel. And right here as humanity begins again, the next shot is fired in this seed war. 
as Ham, the father of Canaan, seeks to bring Noah down. Friends, beginning to see why this final scene in the life of Noah is so important to report. So getting back to it, how will Shem and Japheth respond as they take in this report about their father? Will they jump on board with their brother? Well, verse 23 gives us the answer. Have a look. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so so that they would not see their father's nakedness. Now friends, here we see not only did they reject Ham's overthrow, but their response, the way they responded, demonstrates the highest honour that they could possibly show for their father in this situation. As they did not want even an image in their minds of his disgrace from that day forward. Now what does that say about what we should put into our minds And so Ham's plan for himself and his seed falls flat and the brothers reveal it to Noah the next day. In response, the righteous seed now takes aim, beginning at verse 25. Have a look. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will, be to, will, will he be to his brothers? Now friends, these devastating words placed not on Ham's head but on Canaan's head Mount the case once more that he was around and involved. Because if he wasn't, what are the chances Ham would name his future son down the track Canaan? And so the one Ham sought to bless through disgracing Noah is cursed instead. The sweet will not be his future, but the street. The lowest amongst his own brothers and slave to Shem and Japheth as well. How does Canaan respond to this word against him? Does he take his hard medicine and with repentance now live the life, the humble life bestowed on him? No way. Canaan is filled with rage for being taken from golden boy to water boy. And his hatred and rejection of all things God festers down through the generations such that by the time of Moses, their destruction is nigh. And as the judgment is carried out and the question asks, how did such an evil, bitter root sprout and grow amongst these people? Well, the answer is found right here in our passage this morning. And getting back to it, Noah isn't finished yet, is he? Now turning to Shem, he says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Our friends, see that? Noah doesn't bless Shem, but the God of Shem. And that's because there was another involved in that scene. His name, Yahweh. It was he that ultimately saw to it that Noah's shame was covered over. He inspired it. 
And so Noah blesses and acknowledges Yahweh God first. And then he calls him the God of Shem. For it was Shem who had a keen ear to hear and follow his voice. And so Noah recognizes Yahweh is with Shem. He is working through Shem. And from here on in, that is how it's going to be. Shem's line will be the line that Yahweh God will speak to and work through. So who are the sons who come from Shem? Who are the Shemites? Or as we say today, the Semites. Well, who are we hating on if we are an anti-Semite? That would be the Jews, wouldn't it? It is the Jews who come from Shem. It is this race that God, starting with Shem, will reveal himself to and work out his purposes through. Now, friends, as interesting as that is, it's just getting started. Have a look at what Noah says next to Japheth. May God extend the territory of Japheth. Now, friends, we don't have time to do this now, but if you take the time to trace out Japheth's family tree, you are going to quickly see the house of Japheth winds up having a vastly bigger footprint than the house of Shem. Indeed, friends, to see this truth, all you have to do is look around this morning. We may have one or two Semites among us, possibly some here with Jewish blood, but the majority of us come from Japheth. As such, we carry the blessing bestowed on him. And the second half of what Noah says to Japheth is where this blessing is found. Have a look at it. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. In other words, may Japheth who will spread far and wide, nevertheless one day find his ultimate home in Shem's house. And so come under the blessing of the God of Shem's house, Yahweh. Now that's really nice. But how can that promise play out in reality as these two sons go their separate ways and spread out across the earth? Well, friends, in time, the God who inspired these words of Noah put on flesh and he tabernacled with a certain race of people. What race would that be? The house of Shem. And on one particular day, he says these wonderful words to them. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for my sheep. Who are these sheep? Well, Matthew chapter 15 and verse 24 makes it crystal clear Jesus' sheep are the descendants of Shem, the Jews. But remembering his promise to Japheth, Jesus continues and now says this, have a listen. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. 
And so here we are today. This little non-Jewish flock in Olverston, listening to the shepherd's voice, gathered together to hear his message of salvation, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. A truth that directly testifies to, indeed fulfills, the promise Noah gave to his two sons all those years ago. A truth that confirms once more the book we have in our possession is not the fanciful script of man, but the awesome word of God that tells us the truth. And what a truth is revealed right here. Evil and rebellion cursed and put down, but also a blessing secured through Shem. But not just for him, but all who look to the God who inspired Shem. For those who do, there's a spot for you, says Noah. Plenty of room, always room in Shem's house. A promise secured through the redeeming life, death and resurrection of the one who came in the line of Shem, Jesus Christ. And so for the last 2,000 years, people have been entering into Shem's tent. And as we come, what a reception we receive by the glorious Father who rules his house. Welcome in. Welcome home. Come and enjoy shelter and rest. Peace, blessing and joy with me forever. Have you heard this welcome? Have you received this welcome? Or are you still wandering around on the outside? Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this awesome, inspired part of your wonderful word. Now, Father, we thank you that through this, this really horrible family incident, Lord, that through it, and through working particularly with the older brother Shem, and the way that they honoured Noah and didn't disgrace him, and then through Noah's inspired words that you you lay out your salvation plan father we we thank you for the way that you weaved that out in history uh, despite all the sin and rebellion and rejection that occurred along the way we thank you father that jesus came in the line of shem all those centuries later And in his words, he tells us plainly and clearly that he's dying for both houses, inviting both in. Father, we thank you for that wonderful invitation, an invitation of grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. We thank you now, Lord, if we've received that, that we are under the protection of your house, one that will last forever. And Father God, There are those that we know, friends, family, who who don't know the protection and the love and the joy and the safety and the peace of being in your house. 
And so, Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would give us words to say, uh, situations, communication, um, that we might share the wonderful invitation uh, to be yours through Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.